Okay. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that uh, you have to hang your coat up on the coat rack here. <laughs> okay. And it just makes you feel like you're such an official audio technician if you hang up your coat and umbrella over here and um, get your sweater off. You're listening to All Access on CFUV 101.9 FM on the Songhees and Wasanich territories of Lekwungen and Sinchothan speaking people. On this episode, we're talking about recording music, which to some might seem like an overwhelmingly complicated thing. But we talked with some local musicians who told us that actually, the technological side of recording is not the most complicated part. Before we get to that though, we talked to one of the audio engineers here at CFUV about recording. We record bands all the time on a program called Basement Closet Sessions, where a different live band plays every week. And we also train volunteers who want to learn how to do sound for live bands. So we have a whole variety of microphones here for every purpose. And um, there's hundreds of different kinds of mics in the world and everybody has their preferences for what they like. But these are the ones we have. So I kind of got used to them. So you have, um, this is a good old SM58 mic, which is a classic. Adam Cantor showed Nicola around the recording studio and told us a bit about how everything works. You're following me here? Yep. This is a snare mic. Is this riveting information or what? This yep. is the good old, this is a good S- SM7B, which is a really great vocal mic, which has a lot more of a, just has a lot more of an intimate feel and you can use it for different situations. I mean, one of our techs loves to use these for all the death metal performances, but also Michael Jackson Thriller was recorded with one of these. So it has all kinds of, I think that's true. I don't know. It's what I believe to be true. Right now, Nicola and Adam are rifling through the closet that's in CFUV's performance studio. The closet is full of cords and boxes of equipment. It's called the rack room. We have all kinds of stuff. So if a band is setting up, yeah. um, you know, you can set up the drum kit with the catch, catch their overhead mics and mic the snare and the kick and, and whatever other instruments. It's a fun challenge because every week there's a different kind of band mm-hmm. and... Um, I enjoy it because you never know it's going to come in. In fact, I specifically don't read the email so that I have to figure it out in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I appreciate that Troy writes them anyhow, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they turn out great and sometimes they're a disaster and it's just like dust yourself off and do better next week if it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a DI. Could you explain what that is to me? And what it looks like, it's a like kind of like, you know, the concept of a black box, but this is green. That's right. And it's, they look, at, the black box is actually orange. If you ever look at footage of plane crashes, mm. it's a bit of a, um, anyway, that's a story for another time. But nevertheless, sometimes you see on the news like, oh, I found the black box and then it's orange. It's confusing. It's easier to find, though. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they call it the black box. These DI boxes are green, but I mean, DI boxes uh, don't have to be green. Anyway, um, DI box, long story short, it sort of controls the signal of whatever is going through it. And so um, when a thing is running from the instrument to the soundboard, sometimes the the charge of it all can be a little overwhelming. And so the DI box sort of squishes it into a reasonable range of controllability. When you're recording, you can record in stereo or mono. Yeah, well, mono, um, 
I mean, I feel like this could be self-evident, but it's better to cover it anyway. I mean, stereo, there's going to be different things in the left and the right speaker, and it gives you more of a sense of uh, creating an acoustic space, whereas mono is obviously all, everything is coming out of both speakers equally. And so, I mean, up until the 60s or whatever, everything was mono, and then it started to be stereo, and um, now it's mostly all stereo. If you imagine this is the middle, you're hearing everything right in the middle. If I turn it this way, say to the left, it would start to feel like it's traveling in your left ear towards, or it would feel like this way. Mm -hmm. So heading to the left side of your head. Yeah, and yeah. you can create the illusion of uh, being in a space by where people hear the sounds in their headphones or speakers. It's a um, audio illusion. Mm -hmm. It sounds grand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you hear it a lot once you start to listen for it, especially if you if you ever watch like a movie or a television show and you close your eyes and listen to what they do, something like people walking through traffic or whatever, they, they will pan the traffic so it's traveling from one side to the other. So you feel like you're in this physical space or someone walking across a room or there's a knock at the door. It will be way over on one side. You don't notice if you have your eyes open because you're fixed on the images, but if you close your eyes, you start to hear it as a, the dynamic space that it is. So that happens in music too. The first thing that Adam does when a band shows up is collect all the pieces he'll need to set everybody up. I've come in and I've grabbed all the things, right? That's the point we're at. Yeah, and so you've checked it out. It's part of the process. And we're here. We're here. Yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, we have a very small room here that we record in, and so... So it's small and it's dead, so you can hear. Um, so when we have a rock band in here, we we do all kinds of things. Well, we put the drum kit over here, always. There was one person here who did a whole acoustic uh, study of the room, and there's charts and scientific graphs and statistics and all kinds of things you can look at. I'm not sure where it is right now, but we determined how we could maximize the space but it, I don't think it probably makes much difference. But anyway, they put some padding here and there. So the kit usually goes over here and then we face the amplifiers towards the wall, if it's a rock band or a metal band or whatever, to contain some of the sound so they don't, it's a bit isolated. It's about the best we can do and we try not to aim. I mean, for example, uh, if you have somebody singing, you might not want to put them here with their head against the glass because you get a a strange reflection from the other stuff coming back off the glass into the microphones. Mm -hmm. It's funny how it goes. I mean, last month I had, we did two bands in a row and the first one went so beautifully. It was just, it sounded really, really great. And uh, I was super happy with it. And then the second one was terrible and everything went wrong the whole time. And I, it was just such a challenge to figure out what was happening. Mm -hmm. Eventually we did, but... Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was so surprising and strange, and you just don't know what's gonna what's gonna go wrong or what's gonna happen. Um, okay, well the next step would be if we had a band in here, I'd say now I'm going to go and I would have already set up the soundboard. Let's say hypothetically I've set up the soundboard over there, and then uh, depending on how much time we have, I start to do all of the levels and whatever I'm going to do. I like to start with the drum and the bass and just lay down the foundation personally. But um, everybody does it a different way. When I started, the people that taught me to do it taught me to do it a certain way. And since then, I've completely flipped how I do it to my own way and started telling the young 
interns to do it that way, but it's just a matter of nobody's right or wrong. It's just how you want to arrange things in your head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I take a piece of paper and I write down um, input, like say mic one is the kick drum, mic two is the snare drum, three is overhead left, four is overhead right, etc. Five is the bass. For example, you know, six and seven could be amplifiers and then eight and nine could be vocal mics whatever synthesizer it doesn't really matter but i tend to set up the kit first and then the bass and then the instruments and do the vocals last but other people do the vocals first and the kit last mm -hmm. and i don't think there's any difference really except that i like to hear the kit and the bass first so to me logically i just plug them in first i have my piece of paper and then i go in the other room i guess we could go there yeah let's do it all right Okay, so Nicola and Adam have gone from the performance studio to Studio 2. That's where the soundboard is. The soundboard! Alright, so there, here's the soundboard. As you see, there's nothing to it. The soundboard is actually a huge board with probably hundreds of buttons, dials, and faders, and LEDs, and lights, and everything, man. Um, yeah, so usually we turn that on. It should come up in a second. And then, let's see what we've got here. We have this crazy FX box, which is actually from the 1980s and made for electric guitar effects. Um, so it has thousands of different effects on it. Not thousands, hundreds. Um, not to exaggerate. It has hundreds of effects on it, but we can only use one of them at a time. Mm, I see. So uh, we tend to just use uh, some room reverb. So, yeah, I guess, like... Can you describe what we're looking at right now? We're looking at a whole lot of different dials of different colors. And depending on what you do to them, things will happen, musically speaking. Yes, yeah, so uh, let's say, for example, I said number one was the kick drum, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is you have your, your gain over here. This is sort of the um, amount of kick drum that you're allowing through from just the mic. Mm -hmm. Boom, 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 so on. And then within that, you have a volume slider. So, I mean, the relationship between the volume slider and the gain is another thing mm -hmm. that is a, a unusually large topic, I guess. And it's, you kind of have to go by feeling in order to get the drums and everything balanced out with the other stuff. And it's just really... Uh, a process of practicing mm -hmm. and people can explain it to you for sure but then you, you can't really get it until you just do it a bunch and um, then hopefully it sounds better so that's kind of like the training the ear thing right it's training the ear and I, gu I guess the thing is people who, d who do this they kind of come and hang out in here and just watch it so everything has its natural place but it's also making a lot of sound in other areas in a more subtle way. So you're listening the entire time that the show is kind of happening, is that right? You're adjusting on the fly. Yes, we should be adjusting on the fly and not just sitting here and texting and yeah. ignoring the band. And that's pretty much it. That's not entirely it. There's a lot of knowledge that goes into being able to record a band, especially a live band. And it can seem really complicated. But the complicated side of recording is actually more social. Historically, it's been an industry dominated by men and by people with access to a lot of money. 
but new technologies have made home recording more accessible to more people. And because making music can be such an important way for artists to process difficult emotions and experiences, it's important that the environment is welcoming and accessible. When there are social and financial barriers that make it hard for artists to break into the music scene and record their music, it pushes some people forward and others out. So reducing those barriers also means broadening the scope of people who can record their own music to include more people who have been marginalized or excluded. We wanted to investigate how some local musicians are making their recordings and what their experiences have been like trying to break into the world of recording. There are certain considerations that people who aren't as represented in the music scene have to make when they want to record in a professional setting. Uh, honestly, one barrier was uh, has been gender. Like, there's... Um, there just felt like this huge divide. That's Tanya Semple. Uh, yeah, my name is Tanya, and um, I have a solo folk project called Elder Sister Plum. Uh, which is the stage name that I usually use. And they noticed the gender barrier most when they started to pursue music professionally. I really found this when I was looking for schools to go to when I was younger and ended up finding the independent music production program in Toronto. I didn't know a program like that existed and I wasn't quite sure what I was looking for. I knew I wanted to learn how to record my own music, but I was going to different schools to do interviews and just check out the program. And um, I didn't meet a single female at any of them, um, these like audio engineering programs. Having a completely male-dominated program does have consequences. Yeah, and um, I'm sure you're familiar with the term mansplain. (laughs) That's when someone explains something in a patronizing or condescending way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just a consistent theme uh, in that world, in my experience, um, because the reality was I was coming into it without knowing anything. Um, and this way of talking and explaining things just, I think, is really hard to escape for some guys who maybe aren't aware of it, um, don't, like don't realize it's something that they're doing or... Honestly, some might just think, like, don't care. Maybe they are aware that that's how they talk. Um, that So that was really intimidating. It didn't feel good. Um, and that's gotten better as I've gotten older and I can assert myself a little bit more, but I still experience it. Um, I was in a band called The Half Moon Shine for three years, and we are all, all women. And we didn't have any of our own gear initially. Like, we... Well, except for one of my bandmates, Brett, she had like a sweet pedal board and a sweet guitar, but we didn't have a bass. We didn't have guitar amps. Like we just had to like borrow people's stuff. And we were often playing with bands who were all guys. And, you know, I will say that people were super kind and they would let us use their gear, which was really, really awesome. But the way that we were spoken to because we had to sort of ask questions and be like, actually, I don't know how to use this amp. Um, It just consistently felt really bad the way we were being talked to. And like, it's a pretty similar experience in the recording studio. Um, And I think maybe that's one reason that I just was like, I just want to be able to do this on my own, like in my own space. 
I don't want to have to like explain myself to anybody. I don't know. I think it's, it's, um, it's something that feels bad enough that I was like, I need to find a way that I can do this on my own. This is something that a lot of musicians experience. It's a very real thing. And I know a lot. It's something I talk about a lot with other female musicians. And it's not just in the recording studio. I started experiencing it a lot more within like the live music sense as well. And like sound, the sound person um, is usually, in my experience, has usually been a guy. A crotchety old guy. A crotchety old guy. <laughs> and with the band, with the Half Moon Shine, like, my God, we had such a shit time. Because we also, um, we would switch lead singers, we would swap instruments. And we knew that it was, like, complicated and we were maybe, you know, being... Uh, asking a lot of the sound person at shows we'd like map out our set and be like okay just so you know like this song this person's singing lead and we'd be we'd number the microphones and be like you know just all you gotta do is just adjust the volume a little bit and you know we saw people like crumple it up and throw it away a lot of people uh would be like yeah sure cool and then they would our set would start and they just get up and go drink at the bar <laughs> And I know that that wasn't exclusive to our experience. Like, I've also learned since then that there's certain venues in Victoria that, like, the sound guy is notorious for, like, being an asshole or going and getting drunk. And, you know, so that that wasn't necessarily um, a gender-based thing, but that has also been a pretty consistent thing. And so it's cool, you know, it challenged us to... Um, to just try to get better on our own and try to learn a lot more um, uh, so we could do things more independently. Another challenge for musicians is the idea that there's a specific way to record music. And if you don't do it that way, you're doing it wrong. So issues around imposter syndrome and confidence can create a lot of difficulty for people. Hi, I'm Kai Plant, and I make music, I guess, and I make a podcast, I know. I know I make a podcast and I sometimes make music <laughs> and I record it. And this was one of Kai's biggest challenges when they first got started with recording. Like I just, I didn't know what I was doing. So I asked people, I was just always asking people and um, which was really helpful. Like I know a lot of people that uh, know a lot of things and that was helpful. I have a lot of friends that um, have a lot of experience. So I, I would say just insecurity and not really believing that I could do it and that I could be like proud of what I did. <clears throat> I remember the, like the first stuff I recorded, I was just like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like I thought there was like this right way and this wrong way of doing it. And then over the years I've realized like you can, I can literally do anything I fucking want. Sorry for swearing. I can literally do anything I want and it's fine. So they do. And in the same way that getting mansplained encouraged Tanya and their band to learn more so they wouldn't have to rely on other people to record their music, Kai started recording their own music. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, there's no way I could do the podcast if like someone else was recording me. Kai's podcast is called Feeling Weird. They interview a different person for each episode and they talk about taboo and stigmatized topics. I'm I'm too shy to like, like even this is like a bit scary, you know, having... Uh, someone asked me questions. I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, uh, you probably don't want to talk to me, right? Like, yeah, this is dumb. <laughs> um, yeah, but recording myself is like, uh, it makes it possible. Like, I, I just couldn't do it if 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 someone else was involved. Um, 
and it's it's helped me to believe in myself. It really has. And I feel more confident now when I'm interviewing someone um, or even like if I were to put out if I were to put out a, like an EP or an album or something like next month, I, I would feel less nervous about like the quality and, and whether like people liked it. I remember when I first put stuff out, I was like so worried that it was like, will everyone like this? Will people like me? And now I'm just like, eh. like, am I happy with it? Which is probably why I like feel less there's yeah, there's less of a push to like put stuff out to like be validated by strangers. Recording music is a big deal. Giving your music some sense of permanence in the world can be really daunting. I wish I someone had just told me to like believe in myself when I first started and I kind of feel like sad even saying that cuz like I just f- doubted myself so hard and I and I thought I couldn't do anything. And I think that yeah, recording music, podcast, um whatever it is that you out there you want to record like do it and don't um listen to people that tell you you can't do it because you can and that's the cool thing about 2019 is like you can very easily put out like a hit album and how and off like you know a macbook and that's pretty amazing and uh so yeah i i guess just it sounds so cliche and cheesy but like I think just like believing in yourself and that you can do something great is uh, something important that I wish I would have heard. <laughs> and I think I probably have heard it, but I, maybe I just didn't like believe. It's one thing to like hear to believe in yourself, but to just like to for me to like learn to do it is another thing. So uh, I don't know. I'm I'm going into like a spiral in my head. (laughs) I feel like every chance I get, I just want to be like, hey, you're doing okay. Like, I believe in you. (laughs) So I just, I want to tell people that. Believe in yourself and I believe in you. Imposter syndrome is real. Yeah. I really struggled for a long time to actually identify as a musician. That's Hannah. Because... Um, there's actually a lot of stigma out there uh, in the music community, I would say, for vocalists to circumnavigate. Um, yeah, there's a lot of kind of perceptions that vocalists are not as adept as instrumentalists um, or, yeah, just competent with their craft. Um, and I certainly struggled with that, especially being someone who impro- approaches music making from a very intuitive place. Um, so it's only recently actually, and I think I don't, I still feel some uncomfortabilities with identifying as a musician, um, even though I've just released an album. <laughs> um, my name is Hannah. Um, my artist name is Hannah Elise right now. Um, And I'm a largely, I guess, self-taught musician from Vancouver Island, uh, or what we know to be Vancouver Island, Canada. And actually, it was being encouraged to record their music that made them feel more like a musician. And there's a lot of people in my life who really support me and my craft and, you know, what I'm out here doing. Um, But 
What was interesting is I I think that this whole recording journey has actually really helped that part of my identity and helped affirm it and validate it. Um, and I'm so grateful because uh, one of my one of my dear friends who's actually in my band that I play with right now he's my percussion player. He was the first person who kind of heard me, you know, fiddling around on the guitar. Um, and heard some of the first songs that I'd written, some of the first poetry that I'd set to music, and put me in touch with someone who was doing recording like out of their bedroom on UVic campus, and uh, was like, you should really consider recording some of your stuff, just you know, just so that you have it. You know, you know, he made it seem very, yeah, like made it seem very accessible, um, whereas it didn't feel like something that was accessible to me prior to that. But changes in the industry also need to happen to make recording more accessible. It, it's it's still predominantly dominated by a lot of white men, and um, you don't see a lot of, of marginalized peoples or um, yeah, women in in music production. Um, and I think that's probably one of the most challenging things, um, when you don't see yourself or someone who looks like you represented in, in an industry, it's going to be a lot harder to feel empowered to be a part of that industry. And of course, there are practical barriers. And then money. That's Tanya again. Money is a, has been a huge barrier for me for recording. Um, just to be able to buy the stuff. Just to buy the stuff, yeah. Like, and and one thing that I I love seeing the surprise on people's faces when I'm like, oh yeah, like these albums of mine that you've heard, I didn't use a microphone. Laptop. Yeah, I sang into my laptop. I don't even exactly know where the microphone in my laptop <laughs> is. <laughs> You know, I just sang at it. And um, as I got better at like mixing and editing and panning and like messing around with stuff, you don't need it, man. And Kai feels like not having to pay by the hour because you're doing it yourself creates more space for being creative. I think what I like about recording myself is I can take, I can do a million takes if I want and I could layer like a million things if I want. And in the studio, it's like, you're paying for it it's expensive everything is like everything costs something and so when i'm doing it myself i'm not charging myself money i'm not losing money i can just play around it's more creative it, it the the experience that i had in with different like um producers or you know i don't engineers i guess it's just like really clinical really like boring for me I, it just didn't it was it wasn't inspiring like the fun stuff was like creating the songs and then the boring stuff was like going to the studio and like okay i'm gonna play this bass line like over and over it, it just wasn't fun but there's also the cost of space to record when you're talking about recording real sounds and real spaces um, yeah the biggest obstacle is the space itself that's Bradley Kurishima 
but um, more recently I've been performing under the name of Prince Shima. I'm a Victoria slash Sandwich local, Uvic alumni, and now a, a, an educator and a musician. Like, do you have a room big enough where you can have a full band in it um, and make noise in that space and not make someone like a neighbor angry? Um, there's so much need for space in Victoria, you know, like just for people to live that uh, studios are are maybe like actual spaces are maybe a little bit hard to come by like it's uh, such a premium so I, I don't know if you don't have your own space then for sure the number one restraint um in developing those skills or or um being involved in a recording process is is, is money because if you don't have your own space then you have to rent a space and Renting is usually time um, specific, so you're renting by the hour. It's it's hard to find a, a space to rent that um, is going to be conducive to making what other people probably consider noise. And his first experiences recording were pretty different from what he does now. Yeah, I think I was in grade seven. Um, my guitar teacher had a reel-to-reel, and he, one day at lessons at his in his studio, he showed me um, some music he, he had recorded at home, and I was kind of blown away that you could do this, like that someone could make a recording at home. And um, I found a, a used four-track recorder, um, a tape, like a cassette recorder. I, I don't remember which music store it was, in town, maybe Tempo Trend, and um, I started making, I guess like you call it bedroom music now, but at that time I didn't know what it was, and I started recording. It was experimental just because I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing, um, so experimental by nature, and uh, I had like a little, a little electric organ and a couple of guitars and some uh, hand percussions, and I would I'd make instrumental tracks. That guitar teacher showed him something really important. And so he made this recording where he played all the instruments. And this is something that cannot exist in a real space. You have one person doing four things at the same time. Um, it's a paradox. And uh, at that time, he, he would encourage me to bring in a recording of something and he'd say, you know, find some music you like, a song you like, bring that in, and then we'll figure out how to play it on the guitar. And I kept bringing him these recordings, and he would say, well, I can't really teach you how to play that because that's just, those are just studio tricks. Like, there's not like an inherent kind of, um, uh, of music there for me to teach you. And it kept coming up against that wall. And he, get, he kept trying to push technical proficiency, like, learn jazz, learn the scales, learn how to uh, sight read music, all of this music theory. And there's a, there is a lot of merit to learning that stuff, but I was more interested in learning about how to do these things that he couldn't explain. Like, how do you make, um, how do you make something sound like it's being, it's like a, 
uh, a real pheno- acoustic phenomena happening in a giant room. I mean, you can do that with uh, making, through recording uh, a small object in a small space. It's a kind of, it's a kind of a magic, magic trick, I think. Yeah, it's magical. Hannah also learned something really valuable about their musical development from their first experience recording. They were encouraged to record their music by a friend, and they went to see someone who was recording in their room on the UVic campus. And so I eventually ended up doing that where I just headed over to um, this person's apartment and, um, you know, walked into their little studio setup and we spent, I think, about an hour recording. We recorded the whole time and um, I think I recorded three songs. Um, Yeah. And I think that was really what helped empower me to to keep writing um you know it felt like what I was what I was writing and what I was putting out there was maybe something that other people would want to listen to but they didn't have a strong grasp on the technology or the software that was being used so in that regard I felt pretty clueless or like yeah in the dark I guess um but uh remember asking some questions and you know even now from the tech side of things like that's a big learning curve for me and um yeah there's reasons why um I feel a lack of access to and comfort with technology and so I'm you know struggling with that and um trying to learn more and luckily I've you know worked with some people who have um helped uh, me in that learning process. Pushing themselves to record their first album solidified their desire to pursue music. I think I think I had a a little bit of fear and that fear was kind of associated with you know this is uh, the music industry is also a, a business and and from that side of it I was I think I was having some fear as to what um I, I wasn't doing this for money and I wasn't doing this um, for profit. Um, I was doing it really at the time. It just felt like I needed to do it. And um, so I really wanted that. There was a sanctity there. And I just was worried, I think, that that wouldn't be held or seen. For Tanya, they had recently graduated high school and were living in the Comox Valley when they did their first recording. And I was like, maybe, yeah, maybe this is something I actually really want to do. Um, And at that time, oh, my God, I'm 31 now. So that like recording at that time still was it only existed in professional studios. Like people weren't recording in their homes unless they were people who were uh, pretty wealthy and had access to like all the very expensive gear, Um, you know, you your recordings had to be a very specific standard to get played on any kind of radio. So yeah, as far as I know, like almost all recording just existed within like the professional industry. Um, And so I discovered this program in Toronto called independent music production uh, just for people who wanted to make a living as an independent musician. So again, at this time, like, it was 
rare, a bit more rare anyways, to be an independent musician versus uh, signed to a label. Um, although that was when things were kind of starting to fall apart in terms of labels and the, like the big industry labels. But to apply to this program, um, you needed to submit some demos. And so fortunately, I come from a pretty standard middle-class background. So my parents were able to find a studios, Black, Black Creek Studios, um, just this older couple that has a studio on their farm, um, also in the Comox Valley. And I went in, we were just going to record three songs because uh, I think that was all I needed to submit. But um, I ended up recording 12 songs because I'd been playing the same songs for so long, I think, at that point that I I didn't, well, especially because we weren't doing anything fancy. It was just like one vocal track, one guitar track. I was getting them in one or two takes. So mm. they were like, well, your parents booked this much time, so let's just keep recording. Um, and that was really fun. And I like, he had a huge studio with so much gear. Like, you know, the soundboard here was like, I don't know, three times the size of that. I had no clue what he was doing. And he seemed to be doing so much stuff, even though, like I said, it was just a single vocal track and a single guitar track. No harmonies, no like double vocals or anything. Um, but it was really cool to have that recording. It was unexpected. Um, I believe it was like hundreds of dollars that my parents paid for it. Um, and it, it wasn't a lot of time either. Um, but yeah, that was sort of what the situation was at that time. Um, and I had a CD release party, like, you know, just like burned CDs and handmade the covers. When Kai started recording, they cared less about the quality of the recording and more about the fact that they were doing it themselves. So I started self-recording basically, well... I think I started self-recording like years ago. I was just, I had no idea what I was doing. I think I used to record out of like uh, one of the, like a pair of headphones with a mic on it. I used to use that to record stuff. It was really, really lo-fi, like lo-fi before, like not even like cool lo-fi, just like garbage lo-fi. And, uh, but I never actually showed anyone those. And then like, I think four years ago or so I started recording stuff. It was just, I was like tired of being in bands and being recorded by other people and playing other people's music. I just decided I wanted to make my own stuff. So it was experiences like these and all the barriers they faced around recording that led these artists to doing it themselves. And then over the years I've realized like you can I can literally do anything I want. I was like, I need to find a way that I can do this on my own. But, it, you know, it took me believing in that, in my own artistry first. So they found ways to make recording suit their own needs. Here's Tanya. I mean, I also, I know I'm not recording things that are at the same level of what you'd hear on like you know your regular fm radio station but i get stuff played on college radio and um i sell i sell my cds that i've recorded on GarageBand. i have you know i sell music online like it's fine people like it they listen to it <laughs> oh yeah that's yeah. that's um a sign of the times that people are 
not necessarily be dazzled by the flashy production anymore. Yeah. Their first album was recorded in a friend's basement by someone who knew a lot about recording. And I love that album and it was a really fun experience. And since that time, I just, just kind of decided like, I want to be in control in the future of the recordings that I do because I felt like I lost a certain, uh, just a certain amount of my own individual sound. So they did what a lot of people who want to make home recordings do. I started using, started learning how to use GarageBand. The ubiquitous Mac audio workstation that lets you record, mix, and edit audio. But I just used GarageBand because it comes on your Mac laptop. Um, and It's stable, too. Yeah, it's stable. It's, like, really user-friendly. And the thing about GarageBand is that there are so many ways to use it. It's just, it's cool to me how... Um, the different ways in which people approach recording and even just use GarageBand. Because, like, you know, most people have a Mac laptop. Lots of people have a Mac laptop. So, you know, by default, people have access to GarageBand. And um, I've recorded with with other folks, like with my aunt um, at her place, and I've been sort of teaching a friend how to use GarageBand. And I know, I know other people that use it. And we all use it so differently. And I, I don't even, I wouldn't even be able to explain how that is, but just very, very differently. And so that's sort of one thing that I think is an interesting combat to like, oh, I could, I could probably guess what preset you use on that guitar sound. It's like, sure, if you want to nitpick about like that individual instrument has that specific sound to it, Sure, but the way that people are composing their overall recordings and arrangements, because we're all figuring out how to do it on our own, we're figuring it out in different ways, and then you get a different sound. Mm -hmm. So they started playing around with it. Like, I'd want to record a song, and instead of using a click track or like a metronome, I'd use a drum loop. And then started realizing, like, actually, that sounds kind of cool. And so I'd keep the drum loop in and um, started layering my vocals and creating harmonies. And then there's all these instruments um, just built into GarageBand. And for years, actually, I, well, and I still just use GarageBand when I record. Um, and actually, this, this hasn't even really changed that much. Like, I don't, I don't use a microphone. I just use the microphone in my laptop. I, like, sit cross-legged on my bed, hunched over, like, singing into it. And I'll play guitar. I'll record my guitar. But then I'll just use the sounds that are available to me through GarageBand. And until, like, less than a year ago, I didn't even have a MIDI keyboard. I just used the typing keyboard because you can pull up, like this little keyboard that's like, okay, if you press the L button, it's mm -hmm. like an A or whatever. And I play piano, so I um, was able to just sort of, I don't know, translate that and be able to play music on the typing keyboard. Tanya has no plans to buy more expensive gear. And I've like, yeah, I've recorded um, like maybe four, at least four albums now, just like in my room with garage band and I'm really happy with how they sound um I have found like there's a bit of a 
like this is just my experience, like a bit of an attitude that some folks have that are really into recording um, that, you know, they're like, oh, I can recognize a garage band guitar sound immediately because, you know, everyone's using the same sounds and people have kind of brought that up as like a negative thing. And like, personally, I really don't care. I think it's cool that people can have access to their own little recording studio and can explore and experiment and mess around. And, um, it's just, it's way more accessible and it's a beautiful thing. Part of the advantage of this is being able to make creative decisions and follow your own process. I'll often record a song as soon as I'm done writing it. Um, and that's just more out of a, like, um, my relationship with the song and, uh, you know, a lot of artists of, of different kinds of art, visual art, um, will say like trying to f- decide when the piece is finished is one of the hardest decisions to make. And often I'll find I'm, I, I'm like, okay, this song, I'm done writing this song, but I don't feel like I'm done working on it. So I'll immediately record it and the guitar and the main vocal part that's all taken care of so I'll 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 quickly record it but also because I've just finished writing it the emotion behind the the vocal takes is like it's very real it's very present um and then my favorite part of recording is like one of my favorite parts of music like in general is just singing harmonies and so that's also often while I'll just decide to record a song that I've just finished writing. I'm like, okay, well, I finished writing the lyrics. I finished writing the melody. And now I get to write the harmonies. And that's the part that I get really jazzed about. Um, and I don't, like, I'll keep a take that has, like, a chair squeak in it or, like, my cat in the background. Or if I bump the microphone, I'll keep it if I think that the vocal take sounds how I want it to sound if that emotion is there and if I feel like ah you know if I if I record this next week I don't think it's going to sound the same um so that's yeah that's something that I get through just considering my laptop to be my recording studio um and knowing how to use it so quickly and precisely in the ways that I want to Bradley thought the same thing self-recording comes down to agency the advantage of self-recording is, I think, um, there's a certain degree of safety um, that is inherent to the process that allows you to take bigger risks. Um, if you're paying for a studio space, and especially if there's a sound engineer um, listening to you perform and listening to you make mistakes, um, you generally tend to get more conservative performances and when you're alone somewhere and just creating something you can you can make mistakes and you can take wild chances and um just like with photography or any other kind of of art like uh, a lot of it uh there's a lot of editing involved and so for every one song or picture you take there's you know like 90 to 100 throwaways um, so self-producing is, um, yeah, I mean, it's about agency. It, it, it's, 
if, if you feel like you're in control of that process, then yeah, it's empowering. It's empowering as like a 12 year old to um, create something and then uh, create something in a format where you can give it to someone else and then they can experience it. And not just that, he thinks it's pretty easy to find information on how to do things. I think everybody is just looking things up online now. Like if you have a notion to do something, um, even myself, one of the first things I'll do is Google it and then see if there's YouTube tutorials and then, and then kind of go from there. Oh yeah. Uh, I would say I am a control freak by nature and, uh, which is something that I'm working on. Kai Plant also likes to have things their way when it comes to recording. And I would like to collaborate more with people, but I find it challenging. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, in all aspects of my life, I have a hard time letting go of control and, uh, it is something that I'm working on, but it's, it, it was like really, it was fun in the beginning when I'd play other people's music. And then after, you know, eight years of being in playing other people's music in bands and stuff, I was just kind of tired of it and I wanted to do my own thing. And I think in the beginning, I just didn't believe in myself. I didn't think I could like write or create anything of interest or yeah I just like didn't believe in myself so um beginning to record myself was kind of the process of starting to believe in myself and just in putting my own kind of ideas out there home recording takes the pressure off which is especially important if you're anxious about recording and Kai says that when people pop by to be a guest on their podcast I don't think they're super focused on like what the gear is there, you know, a couple times with people like, Oh, there's a sock on this microphone. That's weird. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty weird. <laughs> um, but I, I think just because of the subject matter of my podcast, it's the gear and the setup is like the least important thing to them. Instead, the content of the podcast is most important. My podcast is called feeling weird. And I talk to a different guest every week or two weeks about something personal that they have experienced. And it's in the hopes of making other people who listen to it feel less weird. So there's topics. I, I, I feel like I've covered almost everything at this point. I have like almost a hundred episodes, but there's, you know, everything from like OCD to like, um, in, in intergenerational trauma to, uh, skin picking disorder, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, it's mostly mental health based, but it's also just like tr more so trauma based at this point and like healing based. And, uh, I really love it and I feel very fulfilled by it. And also, uh, it's very challenging because I have a lot of, uh, mental health diagnoses. So I, I find it like challenging putting myself out there into the world, but I also like feel compelled to do it. Mental health and trauma processing might not immediately come to your mind when you think about music and recording, but for a lot of artists, creating is processing. Songwriting helped Hannah process as well, and it's what motivated them to create their album. I'd just gotten back from Montreal um, that past spring, um, and I was going through a pretty, pretty hard time in my life, um, just... Uh, kind of hit hit a rock bottom and really just needed to heal and rebuild and take a lot of time and space um, for rest um, and integration. And I found that 
songwriting and music was really my medicine at that point in time and helped me process and um, heal from a lot of what had transpired the year before. Um, And uh, at the end of the summer, I found myself with, you know, 10 to 15 songs that I'd written that I felt really good about and that I wanted to share with people and that I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to share the joy and and the love that was the product of you can like all of that pain and suffering, um, that I'd gone through that, you know, was wonderful in me being able to process and then kind of turn into this, thing that is that is beautiful and brings joy it's similar for tanya yeah i write um uh very uh like emotionally charged for the most part um uh yeah pretty like vulnerable music it's just how i process um and i love it i love listening to sad music and i love making sad music it's a kind of a challenge not to um but i do i do try to switch it up sometimes but um I tend to just not feel as inspired to write about things that are uh going well writing music was actually the only method of processing that they use to deal with their mental health issues I have lived with um the pretty serious depression for like well over half my life at this point um a clinical depression and that started like early teen years and kind of other like mental health stuff has come up uh again all starting like pretty young and uh even though I wouldn't recommend this to anyone I really just like didn't deal with it well for a super long time um like was using a lot of drugs and that kind of thing however I think like uh not processing that kind of stuff through like therapy or even really like acknowledging it meant that it really came out pretty powerfully in in my songwriting uh and yeah I would I would strongly suggest people actually just try to access support (laughs) but truthfully I really think that that's where a lot of it came from for me and um I've done a lot of work and like feel very well and stable and healthy at this point in my life um but still that's just become so inherently my process to sort of dig into like what's not feeling right or what is what I'm struggling with at the moment that so that's still um what comes out in my songwriting recording music can be a way to measure your growth as an artist create a record of past life experiences and how you approach them. But it can also be a tool for emotional processing and healing. Artists have been able to take advantage of new technology so they won't have to rely on other people to produce work. And this has meant that more people can get their music out there, not just the people with enough money for professional recordings. These changes also mean that there can be more representation in the music that's available to us. For the artists that we spoke with, shifting away from professional recording studios was a response to social and financial barriers that prevented them from being able to do what they wanted with their music. And those issues still persist in the industry. But DIY recording has had a really positive impact on the artists we talked to. And Bradley says 
The whole point is embracing the changes and challenges. As a grown man, there are times when uh, the right conditions where I'm riding my bicycle and I feel like a kid again. Well, that happens with music too, I think. Um, so for me at this point now, after 20, almost, I mean, getting close to 30 years of playing music now, um, it's not... It's not worth it unless you, you keep looking for new things, new challenges, and new, new things to experience. So you have to grow. I mean, if you don't grow, then... Well, I don't know what happens if you don't grow. <laughs> Stay the same size, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yo, we done easy okay wait let me just say these credits real quick this episode of all access was produced by nicola watts with help from chris rajala coco nielsen and char johnston carter our executive producer is mary decker and i'm your narrator baraka luakila thank you to all of our guests bradley kurashima tanya sample hannah elise adam Cantor and Kai Plant. This program would not be possible without the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the UVic Student Financial Aid and Work Study Program. If you like this podcast, tune in next week. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Like anywhere. There's so many ways to get podcasts. You still have to subscribe great and review because it's important it feeds people I think or at least it does something important I don't know what but it's like vital so we can do it if you love this episode you might like you and the rings investigative episode on mental health services at UVic called take the break hey give me your ear let's uh Let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hi, my name is Aria. I am a software engineer by day and a DJ here at CFUV uh, otherwise. <laughs> um, I helped out on uh, an episode of All Access as well as an episode of Taking Up Space. I didn't realize how much work went into making a super polished and clean podcast until I actually got to help out on one. Um, it's truly a uh, team effort, and the only the like the best marker of that is like not even realizing how much work it takes when you're listening to it because it sounds so good and so nice um, and professional. I would absolutely recommend volunteering at CFUV. Uh, they have a new round of podcasts coming up in the fall that they need help with. And it's a really cool way to get involved. And you don't need any experience to start out. And you get to be a part of like a really cool group of people doing a really cool thing. 